2: Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union, our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured, not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
0: And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, today we are going to begin with a Florida man story. Ooh, good. Nothing like a Florida man who discovers an ancient beast of unstoppable power. (laughs) All right. So the story begins in the mild late autumn uh, on a Florida beach. It was November 30th, 1896. And there were two boys who went out for a bicycle ride along the beach on Anastasia Island, which is a barrier island on the Atlantic coast of Florida.
1: I believe I've been to Anastasia Island. Oh, really? I think so. Yeah? Yeah. How was it? Um, I I seem to recall it being fine, if I am in fact remembering (laughs) correctly. If I've been there, it was great. Did you sense any apocalyptic
0: power lurking below the waves?
1: Um, Probably, but that's just generally how I encounter the ocean. Yeah. Yeah. The apocalyptic power is inside you. If you're, if you're not thinking about the apocalyptic powers of the ocean, when you stare at the ocean, I, you're just not looking at it right. I mean, it, it's, it's the ocean. Man. Right. Yeah
0: yeah well, we that will be a theme of today's episode, <laughs> I believe. So tell me if this matches your experience. I okay. think generally based on I was looking at photos, the beaches on Anastasia Island look like that kind of low, flat, wide beaches with white sands. Oh yeah, not very rocky, not very steep, you know, just kind of like that uh, the 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 beach plain.
1: oh, yeah, for sure.
0: and uh, so while the two boys were out bicycling along the shore about twelve miles south of the city of St. Augustine, They came across something tremendous and sickening. It was a giant monster blob, like some kind of enormous partially deflated balloon of organic matter, stranded on the beach and half sunken into the sand under its own weight. Now, at the longest dimension, this blob was over 20 feet. It looked sort of pear-shaped, like a pear-shaped monster deep into decomposition, One end, which uh, many witnesses took to be the head, was bulbous and solid and engorged, while the other end terminated in this asymmetrical base containing a number of mutilated rubbery stumps trailing off in some kind of frayed, fibrous tissue. And the frayed stumps were described by some observers as tentacles
1: or arms. Very nice. Far more Lovecraftian than most of my beach uh, vacations.
0: Yeah, there's nothing more uh, disappointing than like digging around in the sand at a beach and thinking you have discovered like some kind of monstrous shell but you pull it up and it's actually just like an old shampoo bottle. (laughs) Uh, So the boys went back to town to tell about their discovery. They conveyed the news about the blob monster on the beach to a local physician, an amateur naturalist named Dr. DeWitt Webb. Who was president of the St. Augustine Scientific Society, and pretty much immediately, Dr. Webb came on scene to ev- to investigate, and eventually more precise dimensions were drawn up. So the mass was 21 feet long, seven feet wide, about four and a half feet tall when it was dug out of the pit it had sunken into, and it was estimated to weigh about seven tons. And despite its blobby appearance, I have read anecdotes. I'm not quite as sure if these are true, but anecdotes from the scene that people reportedly Uh, tried hacking at the remains with an axe and were unable to make a dent in it this way. So while it looks very blobby, it was supposedly very tough. Hmm. And this giant mass in the sand with its blob head and mutilated arm stumps came to be known as the St. Augustine monster. Now, of course, the first order of business was to move the dead monster. So, DeWitt arranged a team of horses and men with ropes to dig the mass up out of the sand and drag it up the shore to higher ground uh, away from the reach of high tide. And then once it was safe from being dragged back out to sea, DeWitt set about contacting the experts because, you see, DeWitt had a theory. This was the decomposed head of a
1: gigantic octopus. Ah.
0: Never before cataloged by science. For centuries, mariners had sometimes recounted stories of octopuses so big they appeared more like land masses or groups of islands than fish, so huge they could wrap their tentacles around the hulls of ships and crack them like a melon and drag them down into the deep. And this giant killer octopus of legend was known by lots of names like the Sea Devil, the Sea Mischief. I like that one. Or most famously as one of the forms imagined for the mythical beast of Norse lore called the
1: Kraken. Oh, yes. And, uh, I, and of course there also have been gigantic uh, and semi-gigantic uh, uh, octopuses in uh, Japanese uh, folklore and myth. Uh, I know yeah. there's, a, there's, an, there's an important one in of uh, 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 folklore as mm. well.
0: I think it's uh, – there, there's a giant tentacled creature of some kind in like Ainu, or I mm-hmm. guess that's the Japanese folklore. Yeah, I don't know why the movies put it in Greek myth because I've never heard of it in Greek myth unless I I'm know, missing it's, something. It's
1: become just immersed in there, uh, just kind of stuck in Greek mythology thanks to I guess Clash of the Titans, right? Right. I mean I guess the idea of a
0: giant octopus that can wreck ships is just so cool. You mm-hmm. you can't, you know, You can't resist putting it into whatever kind of mythology you're talking about. In fact, did you know that a giant octopus was one of the signatories of the Declaration of Independence?
1: Oh, that's how all those signatures, right? You need a lot of arms.
0: (laughs) Um, So there have been many different and mutually incompatible descriptions of the kraken. But one of the most famous comes from Erika Pontopadon, the Bishop of Bergen in his natural history of Norway in the 1750s, who writes that it is, quote, "...the largest sea monster in the world, round, flat, and full of arms or branches." And uh, I, Robert and I were talking about this before we came on. Apparently, this poem. I'm sorry to find out, has already been featured on the podcast sometime in years past. But Alfred Lord Tennyson wrote a fantastic poem called The Kraken, which was published in 1830. And it's so good, it would be a shame not to read for you
1: again. Oh, yeah, let's do it.
0: Below the thunders of the upper deep, far, far beneath in the abysmal sea, his ancient, dreamless, uninvaded sleep, the kraken sleepeth. Faintest sunlights flee about his shadowy sides. Above him swell huge sponges of millennial growth and height, and far away into the sickly light from many a wondrous grot and secret cell, unnumbered and enormous polypi winnow with giant arms the slumbering green.
1: There hath he lain for ages and will lie, battening upon huge sea-worms in his sleep, until the latter fire shall heat the deep then once by man and angels to be seen in roaring, he shall rise and on the surface die. I love the idea here that when it comes up into the light, it dies.
0: Like as soon as it enters our world, it is immediately and automatically destroyed. And I think we should keep that in mind as a metaphor for the subject of today's episode.
1: Yeah. I mean, when we've discussed creatures of the deep in the past, I mean, that, I mean, that is part of the scenario, right? Things that survive in the lightless high pressure depths, uh, You drag them up, they're not going to necessarily retain anything like their original form.
0: Right. And I think you could also say the same happens to the imagination or the myths of sea monsters once you grab them and get a hold of them to take a look. Mm -hmm. Because uh, while I think we will make a case later in the episode that in a qualified sense, sea monsters really do exist. Uh, They often don't match exactly what people tell tales of. Exactly. But anyway, to come back to the St. Augustine monster, what if these legends of a monstrous octopus had been based on a real giant octopus that had never before been confirmed to exist but had been seen by the the, the Norse mariners of old? Uh, one might have felt justified wondering if maybe this seven-ton blob with its hacked-up arm stumps on a Florida beach was the rotten head of a beast that had once been like the kraken when it was alive. And so one of the people that DeWitt contacted about the St. Augustine monster was the Yale University zoologist Addison Emery Verrill. And initially, based on photos and a few descriptions, Verrill was convinced by the idea that this was some new and previously unknown species of humongous octopus monster. Uh, Verrill even suggested a scientific name, Octopus gigantius.
1: Well, that's a, that's a good name. It's to the
0: point. Could have been more creative,
1: actually. Yeah. Like octopus cracanus.
0: That would have been good. (laughs) Octopus ridiculous. Yeah. (laughs) Octopus bloboculus. Uh, So based on the initial photos and descriptions that Verrill received and by comparing the analogy of, uh, you know, the size of known octopuses, Verrill wrote at the time, quote, When living, it must have had enormous arms, each one a hundred feet or more in length, each as thick as the mast of a large vessel and armed with hundreds of saucer-shaped suckers, the largest of which would have been at
1: least a foot in diameter. And, of course, that description instantly brings to mind some of these classic woodcut illustrations of of an enormous octopus wrapping its arms around the masts of ships.
0: Yeah, and these match like the old sailor's legends mm-hmm. from, say, Norway or from Greenland where they'd say, you know, if you go out in the ocean at the wrong time of year,
1: uh, a kraken can come up and drag your ship down. Now, there's a, an older episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind I want to mention Um where we t- we talked about sea monsters, particularly uh, and how they relate to maps, uh, we talked at length on that episode about a book by Chet Van Duzer. Mm-hmm. and one of the things that he pointed out in that book is that there was uh, very often like a, a political advantage in pointing out the potential for sea monsters in certain areas. Like, oh, you don't want to go, you don't want to go on this trade route. Uh, you might get attacked by an octopus. Also, that's our trade route, and we would prefer to have uh, you know full command of it. A genius way to establish fishing rights. Yeah, I, it's just one of the the, uh, the things here is that monsters do serve various purposes. Mm-hmm. We often discuss it on this show. That, you know that monsters are a way to explain something, to perhaps explain something you have found washed up on a beach, or to explain something that is less tangible, some some fear in the mind. Uh, but also, they can serve uh, political purposes as well. Absolutely.
0: Now, this is a pretty amazing thing to conclude, right? In 1897, you've got real physical evidence of a giant octopus from seafarers' legends. Yeah. But unfortunately, it was not to be uh, because once Verrill got more data to work with, he quickly went back on the idea that this was a giant octopus or an octopus of any kind. He wrote an article in The American Naturalist in 1897, which is the year after the monster was discovered, including a lot of interesting observations about the mass. For instance, even uh, three months after its initial discovery, the monster had not shown noticeable advance of decomposition. Instead, Verrill said that it had resisted decay and stayed pretty much as it was when it was first found. That's kind of interesting. Verrill also said that he had initially been misled by incorrect descriptions of the mass, including a report from a Mr. Wilson that a 36-foot-long arm had been found attached to the part of the monster uh, to one part of the monster and buried alongside it, and this turned out to be untrue. But the real death of the huge octopus hypothesis was when Verrill received some samples of the tissue from DeWitt. And according to Verrill, even a quick glance at these sections of the blob would tell you they were not octopus tissue. And I'll just read a section of his uh, description with some abridgments. Quote, They are white and so tough that it is hard to cut them, even with a razor, and yet they are somewhat flexible and elastic. The fibers are much interlaced in all directions and are of all sizes up to the size of coarse twine and small cords. Naturally, most of the interior parts had decomposed long before it was opened so that we lack details on the interior structure. Externally, there is but little trace of cuticle. The surface is close-grained and somewhat rough with occasional gray patches of what may be remnants of the outer skin, much altered by decay. The thick masses contain a slight amount of oil and smell like rancid whale oil, but they sink quickly in water owing to their great density." And later he says, It's toughness and elasticity remind one of the properties of thick vulcanized rubber.
1: Uh, and here we're getting closer to the truth.
0: Right. So Verrill concluded – Based on his experience with marine animal tissues, that it was the integument, meaning the tough outer skin, from the head of a dead sperm whale, though possibly a sick or unusually shaped one. But this amazing monster, this astonishing evidence of the great king octopus battened upon huge sea worms until the latter fire heated the deep, you know, (laughs) he turned out to be nothing but a multi-ton blob
1: of dead, partially decomposed skin and bits of other tissue from a sperm whale. And it's crazy how that can be a disappointing answer you know to say actually it's not the flesh of of an undersea uh, giant. It's the flesh of an even larger undersea giant, just one that we're more familiar with.
0: Exactly. I mean, the sperm whale is a sea monster. Yeah. I mean, there, there is clearly reason to believe that some sea monster legends are based on observations of actual animals. And they're not monsters. They're animals we know about that are amazing, gigantic, fascinating, strange, terrifying creatures in their own right. And the sperm whale is absolutely one of these. Yeah,
1: C- creatures that still retain many of their mysteries – uh, so you know, it's not even like we have a full understanding of these creatures, and you know, can see them at a zoo or something or an aquarium. Uh, you know, the, the great whales are are enigmas in, in many respects. I mean, they are they are they are they are beautiful, wholly blameless creatures, <laughs> but they are not giant octopuses.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, if you can blame them for anything, you can blame them once dead for inspiring a lot of back and forth about new types of giant octopuses or monsters discovered. Because despite a highly reputable zoologist solving the mystery of the St. Augustine monster within a year of its discovery, right? This was 18—this mm-hmm. is with within less than a year of the thing being found— that despite this, the giant octopus theory persisted for a long time. I mean a really long time and not just in the halls of cryptid mania but in respectable mainstream publications. It still gets brought up when, when people talk about blobs washed ashore in recent years. The idea that maybe this was a giant octopus in St. Augustine and they figured out what it actually was the, like a less than a year later.
1: Yeah. So this is going to be the subject of uh, this episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind and the following, a two-part look at... globsters. (laughs) globsters.
0: <laughs> now, we'll define globster more uh, rigorously as we go on in this episode, but you might be able to guess already what it is. Basically, it is a blob of life washed ashore on a beach that gives rise to many questions and speculation.
1: Yeah. Mysterious, mm, rancid goo. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: uh, but yeah, you, you might be wondering how could there be two episodes worth of stuff to talk about? It has wonderful connections to sea monster legends, to, to, to really interesting interesting Science. Uh, this is this turned out to be a very rich topic. No pun intended about the richness of whale blubber.
1: Yeah, it has legs. Even if uh, you know lobsters themselves don't really have appendages anymore,
0: <laughs> or if they, the only limbs they have are the hacked up frayed arms, and right. th- those are good enough. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we should take a quick break, and when we come back, we will go a go a little bit further into discussing what is a globster.
1: Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms. Visit Visible.com. All right, we're back. So this is the sort of thing we see pop up uh, here and there. Uh, You know, anywhere the natural world touches human civilization and quite often inexpert uh, biological assessments uh, occur of what remains. Oh yeah. And then, I, I love I love a good goo. Yeah, and in, in many cases too, we're going to be looking at situations where it is an expert who is uh, who is passing judgment on the globster or the strange jelly that's washed up, but they might not be an expert in say marine biology. Uh, they might be an expert in another area. Uh, So it's not just, uh, you know, local uh, buffoons Mm -hmm. uh, marching drunkenly up and down the coast and encountering strange remains.
0: Well, remember from the story that we started with, with Mm -hmm. the St. Augustine monster, Addison Emery Verrill himself, this noted zoologist, he at first thought it was a giant octopus of shipwrecking size. Uh, It was only once he had the samples in front of him and better photographs to look at and stuff that he had – that he realized like, oh, no, I've made a big mistake. (laughs)
1: So uh, a a couple of other examples of similar scenarios uh, that that I want to discuss here. First of all, the idea of star jelly. I've talked about this on the show before. It's one of my favorite examples and not just because it so closely mirrors the opening of the classic films, uh, you know, The Blob from 1958 and the remake in 88, (laughs) in which a hobo pokes a meteorite and an ooze inside of it climbs up the stick or down the stick and consumes his hand. In these cases, though, with star jelly, what you have is an amateur sees a shooting star in the sky and then attempts to find it, to find the resulting meteorite. And so they go kicking around the woods, paying attention to stuff that they normally wouldn't deal with or encounter and certainly wouldn't analyze. And finally, they happen across some glob of fungi or decaying organic material, and they become convinced that this is what fell to Earth. This is the star jelly. (laughs)
0: I wonder what's the funniest substance ever ever believed to be star jelly. Oh. Like was there ever just like a pile of bear vomit that, yeah. that became star jelly? Or candy, you know, like some sort of gummy candy uh, perhaps. Oh, like a bag of marshmallows left out in the rain? Yeah. Or a
1: cake left out in the rain? Who knows? <laughs> um, now another example that comes to mind, sewer blobs. Such as the Cameron Village Sewer Blob in Raleigh, North Carolina. Lovely. Uh, you, you might remember this one, Joe. This one was something of a YouTube celebrity back in 2009. Uh, well I, before I'm the I'm Sorry days. to say,
0: I don't. You remember, don't remember
1: this? No. Oh, I remember. Um, I remember like blogging for How Stuff Works at the time, <laughs> and I, I think I think Marshall Brain did some some blog posts about about this particular sewer blob. Uh, because what happened is you had this gross footage emerge of a pulsating glob in the sewers. And the footage scored just a lot of blob and unknown organism headlines, but it all turned out to be a colony of uh, tubifex worms, a.k.a. Sledge worms or sewer worms. Uh, and they're just a uh, tubified segmented worm species that naturally reside in lakes and rivers, gobbling up bacteria, but they can survive on very little oxygen and have a knack for thriving in heavily polluted areas is uh, full of uh, organic material. Wonderful. So a sewer is totally their jam. So what brought them to Raleigh? Do we know? Uh, I, it's not particularly Raleigh. It's just the sewer system there. You know, there that they they just have a knack for thriving inside of the artificial um, uh, uh, parameters of a, a human sewage system, mm-hmm. and then they just end up in these big pulsating masses.
0: So there could be sewer worm blobs all over the place. There just happened to be one that went viral in 2009.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, what's the alchemy for becoming a, a YouTube superstar? You right. Know, a lot of it's just luck. This right was place, the, right time. Yeah. This was the glob that was destined for um, for superstardom. This is the blobby pie. Yeah. Uh, sadly, this is a few years before Pizza Rat, so the, the sewer blob and Pizza Rat did not get to, like, team up in a buddy cop film, but... Uh, you know, I still hold out hope for the future. But coming back to the, the oceanic variety of mysterious blobs, the crazy thing is you still see these headlines all the time. Uh, heck, just this month in uh, 2019, uh, The Sun, a fabulous um, bastion of journalistic integrity, mm-hmm. uh, they gave us this headline, mystery sea creature dubbed Donald Trump's hair, hairpiece leaves <laughs> experts stumped <laughs> after a yellow blob is spotted off Australia. Okay. Um, Who dubbed it that? The author of this article, or <laughs> it, that came, comes to us from the sun. Uh, weirdly enough, I,
0: I mean, I admit that's a good headline. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and weirdly enough, Fox News ran an article in December of 2018 listing some of the more noteworthy globsters to wash up on shores just in 2018.
0: I mean, there's always a blob here or there that'll that'll get somebody's attention, and there'll be an article about it. Who knows? In the Daily Mail, maybe saying it's an alien.
1: Yeah, I mean it's always going to make a headline, right? Because you get to say mysterious blob, globster, what have you, has washed upon the shore. You want to see that picture and then you're intrigued by the mystery. And the selected entries are uh, in that Fox News piece, for example. It's a good sampling of the sort of strange blobs that are often reported. Unidentified whole or partial sea jellies or jellyfish. Slabs of decaying whale and weird fish remains, and sometimes it, it it is actually the the remains of a cephalopod or seems to be, including uh, the, the odd remains of a giant squid. For instance, there was a noteworthy giant squid uh, that washed up in August of 2018 on the coast of New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Like undeniably, uh, and it, uh, just a whole giant squid, and you see pic- uh, pictures of the, the the two gentlemen who found it, like laying next to it, and posing with it.
0: Wait, do you know if it was giant squid or colossal squid?
1: Oh, it was our friend Archie, for oh, sure.
0: yeah, Archituthis. Yeah. Uh, I think just because I, I think of the colossal squid as being the one in the Southern Ocean, but I guess there are giant squid down there too.
1: Now, the term globster itself emerges uh, in 1962 with uh, from a similar part of the world with the Tasmanian globster. Uh-huh. This was a 20-foot in unidentified carcass that washed up, uh, washed ashore in western Tasmania. And uh, this is uh, this is a quote from that particular story. Scottish biologist and writer Ivan T Sanderson coined this term globster uh, in covering the the story and it beat out sea santa which was the term used by another journalist covering the story as being like the uh, the term that would uh, remain part of the cryptozoological lexicon. See Santa? Where does that come? Uh, well, see, it, it's, it doesn't make sense to me. Because it jiggles like a bowl full of jelly? I guess. It's just a bad headline. Globster <laughs> is clearly the way to go. Now, Sanderson was also a sci-fi writer. He wrote about nature, travel, and the paranormal. He's most remembered today as being something of a cryptozoologist. Okay. But um, – uh, the the article he wrote uh, included this description. It was initially covered with fine hair. There were five or six gill-like hairless slits on each side of the four parts. There were four large hanging lobes in the front, and between the center pair was a smooth gullet-like orifice. The margin of the hind part had cushion-like protuberances, and each of these carried a single row of spines, sharp and hard, about as thick as a pencil and quill-like. <laughs> It had a resilient flesh which appeared to be composed of numerous tendon-like threads welded together in a fatty substance. So that sounds a lot like uh, the St. Augustine monster in many respects.
0: Very much. Kind of kind of fatty, kind of fibrous, blob-like mm-hmm. with like uh, uh, hairs or w- weird little frayed uh, fibery bits that, that are hard to identify. Yeah, it would um, – it it would not be surprising to discover that this had come from almost anything, right? You know, like you, you when you see an object like this, it's it's just not obvious that this is clearly one thing or another, right? And to be fair, I mean, again, think about the mysteries of the sea, under the curtain of the deep, there there lie great, uh, you know, great things probably still to be discovered, and so th- this is one of the things that I think sometimes people do. It sort of annoys me, is like mocking ancient peoples for believing in sea monsters mm-hmm. because it is true that many ancient encyclopedists and b- bestiarists and seagoers described creatures which probably never existed But I would posit that the belief in sea monsters generally, especially in the ancient world and even up until, you know, recent centuries, was a completely reasonable and valid thing to believe. And in many cases, sea monsters did exist. We just now have more accurate descriptions of them and we call them by different names. The sperm whale, the blue whale, the giant squid, the sunfish, the lion's mane jellyfish. So like if an ancient sailor from Phoenicia or somewhere tells you there's a monster of the deep with 10 arms taller than the height of seven men with eyes bigger than your head, he would essentially be telling the truth about a giant squid though now we have more accurate ways of documenting these creatures when we encounter them and we've we've certainly narrowed the list of giant sea creatures that we think are likely to actually exist but some sea monsters do exist they're just animals and the ocean is full of amazing rare huge terrifying fascinating creatures and sometimes even before modern marine zoology and documentaries like Blue Planet, people would come across them somehow. And one of the ways that people have long been encountering sea monsters like this is in the form much like the St. Augustine monster, washed ashore or pulled up on a line or in a net, dead, decomposing, suggesting an original form in a sort of once or twice removed fashion, you know, like melted, alienated, blob-like.
1: Yeah, and ultimately, like partially exploded. Yeah, by by virtue of being pulled out of the depths. Yeah,
0: not to mention. Well, I mean, you mentioned exploded, uh, exploding whales are a whole other thing. Oh yeah, that we could we get... talk about sometime. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think it's very useful, though, to think about uh, how sea monsters were discussed in olden days. Um, for instance, St. Augustine wrote that a monster is ultimately part of God's plan and uh, an adornment of the universe that can also teach us about the dangers of sin. Mm-hmm. But again, a part of God's plan, a part of the natural world. So these were not you know, described as being demons, per se. They were just... Uh, creatures that we did not know much about and were, were noteworthy for uh, some of their uh, uh, their their attributes. Mm-hmm. 13th century theologian Thomas of Contempore devoted one book uh, entirely to sea monsters and another to fish of the sea. And uh, the dividing line between the two, rarity and size, that is what determined a sea monster. Is it extremely rare and or is it Particularly enormous.
0: I mean, those would also be things that would tend to describe top predators. Yeah, there are not nearly as many of them, and they tend to be bigger.
1: Chet Van Duser, who I uh, referenced earlier, he wrote a he brought the, this up in uh, the excellent "Sea Monsters on Medieval and Renaissance Maps," and in that book, he chose to define sea monsters as "quote aquatic creatures thought astonishing and exotic in classical, medieval, or Renaissance times." Mm-hmm. And that, that covers a lot of ground considering, you know, how little was known about the ocean depths in those times and the creatures that live there. And, uh, you know, we, as we've covered on the show before, it's always worth stressing how much remains for us to understand today, even if we can safely rule out the number of true giants that remain.
0: Yeah, so I would say that when the sea gives up some kind of mysterious mass, I think it is okay to have the impulse to to be amazed by it and wonder what it is. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's not unreasonable to say this could be evidence of something very weird and interesting. But you also shouldn't jump to the conclusion that now you've discovered a gigantic octopus. That's
1: the thing. And this is one of the crucial errors that you see over and over again, right? Is what is this more likely to be? Is it more likely to be a creature— that there has never been hard evidence for, that we do not know to actually exist? Mm-hmm. Or is this perhaps the remains or part of the remains of something that we do know to exist? Now, one of those one of those possibilities is certainly more exciting than the others. Who doesn't want to be the first person to discover proof of uh, some amazing beast? I mean, if you find some sort of rotting... Um, primate in your backyard i know i want it to be bigfoot as opposed to just uh somebody's uh, you know pet chimpanzee that escaped and met its tragic end in my backyard but one of those is far more likely to be the case than the other well, one of them you're going to be
0: far more likely to sell for a big score of money than the other.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I'm not sure. I, honestly, I don't know what a dead chim- chimpanzee goes for on the, the, the like local black market, but uh, probably not as much as Bigfoot in a cooler.
0: I wonder what is the largest, the highest price a supposed Bigfoot in a frozen block of ice has ever sold for. Mm, I don't know.
1: Probably a pretty penny.
0: So I think we should try to define globsters a little bit more um, to, to get a get a more rigorous idea of what we're talking about uh, to fit into this category. So a lot of somewhat different looking things have been classified as globsters. What do all of them have in common? I'll, I'll posit a list of some universal criteria. This is this is my universal globster checklist. Okay. Number one comes from the sea. Obviously. Number two appears to be organic in nature.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Number three but does not currently appear to be alive. And number four, defies initial classification. So it's definitely a globster when the sea gives up some dead organism and it's at least initially hard to tell what kind of organism it is. But beyond that, there are some other major features common to many but not all things called globsters. Uh, One is that usually the object is large, like Mm multi-ton. Usually it looks really gross or unusual and makes people think they've discovered a new species or a monster or an abnormally large specimen of a known species like a gigantic
1: octopus. Occasionally bright colors come up, especially if the specimen is uh, something that is related to a sea jelly. Mm -hmm. Uh, But certainly not in these cases where it is ultimately part of a whale. Yeah,
0: I'd say the most common physical description is big old blob, horrible odor, off-white, gray, or pale pink color, uh, blob-like shape, no apparent skeleton or bones, no apparent eyes, no apparent head, covered in fine hairs or stringy substances, and a kind of rubbery texture. Did I just see you shiver, Robert?
1: Yeah, I did. Uh, It's just – it's just, some, it's just that description, right? It's just so loathsome to imagine.
0: <laughs> I'm surprised. I usually think of you as a person who has a quite strong constitution uh, with <laughs> regards to, to gross and icky things.
1: I don't know. The sea will offer up some uh, some things to challenge us. That's for sure. So let's talk about some other examples of globsters because there are many and we are not going to be able to cover them all today. I mean, to, to 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 mention a point already made, in, just in 2018, you had multiple examples of lobsters popping up, uh, washing ashore for humans to find. So uh, let, let's see, let's 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 go through them here. We've talked about the, the Tasmanian lobster here, uh, uh, OG lobster from 1960. Mm-hmm. There's also the Bermuda blob from uh, 1988. Uh, which uh, was described as uh, two and a half to three three feet thick, very wide and fibrous with five arms or legs, rather like a disfigured star. It had no bones, cartilage, visible openings, or odor. Hmm. This one uh, was probably the remains of a whale carcass, by the way. Another one is uh, the Hebrides Islands Globster from 1990. And there's a, a description of this one that's included in a, in a paper that uh, came back to uh, several times in researching this. Uh, How to Tell a Sea Monster, Molecular Discrimination of Large Marine Animals of the North Atlantic, published in the Biological Bulletin in 2002 by um, Carr et al., Quote, it had what appeared to be a head at one end, a curved back and seemed to be covered with eaten away flesh or even a furry skin and was 12 feet long and it had all these shapes like fins along its back. (laughs) Uh, Now, there was a
0: Nantucket blob that was supposedly – it was like a big blubbery looking thing. Uh,
1: There was – what? a, A Newfoundland blob? Yeah, this was in uh, uh, St. Bernard's Fortune Bay, and uh, I used to live in Newfoundland, so I'm pretty sure I've been to this uh, this area. Uh, I never saw anything like this, uh, but, but Newfoundland, uh, you, you do see all sorts of interesting things wash up on the shore. Uh, described as an enormous, rotting, whitish mass, 5.6 meters long and 5 meters wide, no head, no tail, all bleached tissue, rough fringed with material that looked like hair, but was actually, quote, a braided tissue mixed with seaweed and sand, mm. seven or eight uh, lobes or slits. And this is from that Carr et al. paper. Uh, the state of the, the decay here made identification impossible, but uh, morphology ruled out a giant squid and suggested either the remains of a basking shark or any of several whale species found in the surrounding Newfoundland waters." Uh, Car at all ruled that based on genetic sequences that they were able to, um, uh, you know, to, to determine from the from a sample of the remains, it is without doubt the remains of a sperm whale.
0: Yeah, familiar story by this point. Now, uh, in two thousand three a 12-meter-wide, 13-ton specimen of glorious blobbiness washed up on the coast of Chile at a place called Los Muermos Beach. And according to a BBC News article on the specimen from July of 2003, uh, researchers in Santiago thought that at first it might be some new species of giant octopus or squid. James Mead, a zoologist at the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, disagreed, telling the BBC, quote, I don't have enough data to say it's an octopus or it's a whale but I would hazard a bet that when it gets firmly identified it'll be a whale and I've got a photo of it here it looks what does it look like Robert?
1: I mean it looks like a giant uh, (laughs) Eldritch glob of a creature Uh, certainly you don't look at it and think oh that's part of a whale no it looks kind of it could be a Cthulhu head yeah
0: It's sort of got things that look like arms or tentacles. And that comes through based on the photos because in the BBC article, another whale expert disagrees with Mead saying that based on the photos, it doesn't look like whale tissue. It lacks a distinctive collagen matrix. Uh, And then after that, the article goes full Kraken. Quote – European zoologists – and the author does not say who. It just says European zoologists – said it closely resembled descriptions of a bizarre specimen found in Florida in 1896 that was named Octopus giganteus, which has confounded experts ever since. (laughs) Seems odd to me that the BBC is still floating – no pun intended (laughs) – the gigantic octopus explanation in 2003.
1: Yeah, especially when you look at all these cases, the ones we've, we've looked at and some of the stuff we're about to discuss in a bit here, it seems like the whale explanation is generally the safe bet.
0: Yeah, I mean, because remember, Veril, the expert at the time, positively identified, he said, look, I've seen what these samples are like. This is conclusively sperm whale tissue. That was back in 1897 and over a hundred years later, like 106 years later, Mm -hmm. we're still like, I think maybe this was a giant octopus that was on the beach in Florida. Uh, But you know what? We can do the lab work. That's a wonderful, glorious capability we have now. You mentioned the lab results uh, with a couple of these other blobs. So what was the Chilean blob that people are saying is maybe a new giant octopus? Well, there was a paper published in the Biological Bulletin in 2004 by Pierce, uh, Massey, Curtis, Smith, uh, Olivaria, and Maugel— And this was called Microscopic Biochemical and Molecular Characteristics of the Chilean Blob and a Comparison with the Remains of Other Sea Monsters, colon, Nothing But Whales. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, you can guess where this one's going. They used electron microscopy to reveal that the Chilean blob was, quote, largely composed of an acellular fibrous network reminiscent of the collagen fiber network in whale blubber. They also used DNA analysis to determine that the blob was a 100% match for the DNA of sperm whales. Quote, These results unequivocally demonstrate that the Chilean blob is the almost completely decomposed remains of the blubber layer of a sperm whale. And in fact, the authors point out that despite lingering cryptozoological interest, every single one of the globsters we mentioned in the list a minute ago, or I I think all of them, if not all of them, most of them are are mentioned in this list – Uh, and the St. Augustine monster that we started by talking Mm -hmm. about have also been shown by modern sample analysis to have been the decomposed remains of whales, usually sperm
1: whales, but definitely whales. So far, it's all whales. All right, well, on that note, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about whale flesh. We're going to discuss why and how uh, whale flesh ends up uh, masquerading as strange, unexplained creatures from the deep.
2: and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
0: All right, we're back. So we've got all these stories of a blob, a globster, a big mass of some kind, washing up on a beach somewhere, getting pulled up by a trawler, uh, appearing somewhere from the depths looking like a, a Cthulhu head or a giant octopus, a kraken, mm. uh, some kind of squid creature,
1: and, and always so far turning out to be part of a dead whale. Yeah, because here's the deal. If you're looking for a sea monster, whales are it. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> and likewise, if a giant hunk of something formerly living washes up on the shore, you have to at least consider that it stems from some of the largest denizens of the sea. And indeed, that classification of animal that includes not only the largest animals alive today, but the largest animals that have ever lived. Yeah. The larger adult whales, as we've discussed in the show before, are largely untouchable in the natural world. Modern whales, yeah, they have to contend with human ships, pollution, and they've had to survive the horrors of the whaling industry in the past. Uh, and in some cases, they do have to contend with the orca, the, the wolves of the sea. Yeah, uh,
0: pods of orcas will sometimes try to prey on sperm whales. Yeah,
1: And then, of course, the younger whales are, are even more vulnerable in some cases. Uh, but for the vast majority of, of their marine peers, the whales are just gods beyond their touch, mm. at least until they die. Mm. That's when whale fall occurs, uh, when the, the whale has, 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 has finally given up the ghost and it sinks And it serves as an immense bounty, a a pop-up ecosystem of nutrients in an ocean desert, sustaining everything from sharks to far more specialized whale ghouls like uh, the bone osodex that we've discussed in the show before.
0: It's the rotten Thanksgiving of the ocean. It is.
1: And then, of course, the, you know certainly there are cases where whales are beached. Uh, we have an entire episode of stuff to blow your mind from the past about this topic on this topic about how this occurs, and uh, or their cadavers will wash ashore, uh, you know, more or less whole. I think we've in a recognizable form, right? Like, there, uh, if you've ever watched any of the the, the David Attenborough uh, nature specials, you've seen some of these, either dealing with a whale fall with a whale corpse on the bottom of the sea and looking at all the things that tear into it, or like bears munching on a whale that's washed up. Um, <laughs> wow. You know, it's just, it is a bounty of resources. It's like this thing that was untouchable for so long and grows to such an enormous size is suddenly um, up for grabs. It's like the, uh, you know, the, the, the emperor has died and now the, the, the gates are undefended and everyone can just storm in and have as much gold as they want. And, but then, of course, we do have cases where we just get a big old hunk of blubber. Just a big old hunk of blubber washing up on the shore and then people wonder what this might be. Mm-hmm. So to, to, to really put that together though, to, to 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 understand like what's going on here, we have to talk about what blubber is and what it is not. Blubber is essentially, and I really want to tag essentially here, a thick layer of fat, but it's thicker than any fat layer you'll find elsewhere in the animal kingdom It covers the entire body of animals, such as seals, whales, and walruses, except for their fins, flippers, and flukes. It has three key roles, energy storage, insulation, and buoyancy. Hmm. That last one is key, of course, to our discussions here. So gnawed or hewn from the sinking Leviathan, uh, it may float free. And as far as thickness goes, because some of these these lobsters they do look very thick. The thickest blubber is found on the right whales who live in chilly Arctic and Antarctic waters, and it's more than a foot thick. However, the chemical properties of the blubber actually determine all three properties of the blubber: uh, again, the energy storage, the insulation, the buoyancy, rather than just pure thickness. So, it, yeah, it's important to, to to think about that as being just part of the entire animal's outer layer, and that's how you can get some of these large. Pieces, you know, it's like a big flayed hunk of blubber. It's not like just a, uh, you know, a, it's not necessarily like just a single isolated part of the anatomy. Mm-hmm. And not only is this blubber thicker than the fat of land animals, it also contains a lot more blood vessels. And many marine bi- biologists actually consider it more of a unique connective tissue unto itself.
0: Yeah, but, well, it's got that collagen matrix yeah. that uh, that we've seen the experts talking about.
1: Exactly. So yeah, there are principal there 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 are aspects to the blubber that make it rather unique. And these attributes are one of the reasons that it'll end up washing ashore, but it's also one of the reasons that we may look at it and we don't associate it with, say, uh, you know, the, the fat on a, a butchered cow or pig or what have you. However, this does make me wonder if during the days, like the, the you know, the, 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 uh, the peak of the whaling industry, mm-hmm. would you be far less likely to encounter a globster sighting just because more people would have familiarity with the anatomy of whales. Hmm. Or perhaps they would be, because there are fewer of them to uh, to wash to wash up on the shore, I don't know.
0: That's a good point. Like people would be familiar with whaling all around and the, or maybe not everywhere, but could mm-hmm. look at that and say, yeah, that that's uh, that's the gold of the sea right there.
1: Yeah, or indeed would a would a a whaler or former whaler be less likely to make the globster mistake? Would they be in a position to say, oh, well, that's clearly a big old hunk of blubber. I've seen blubber before. But then again, familiarity with the living or you know recently butchered animal is not necessarily the same as being familiar with uh, its, its more decayed appearance.
0: That's true. There is an estrangement of form that comes about uh, after the creature has died and, and who knows uh, h- how far that estrangement goes. Now, I think one of the takeaways from today's episode is that it seems like the majority of these globsters, these big blobs that wash ashore and are hard to identify, are parts of whale bodies. Right. But there is a whole other category of globsters that do not fit this and either uh, could not be identified as uh, conclusively as whale tissue or are very likely something else. And that is what we're going to focus on in the next episode.
1: In the meantime, while you're waiting for Globsters Part 2 or Invasion of the Globsters, whatever we end up calling the episodes, uh, you can check out StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's our mothership. That's where you'll find all the episodes of the show going back to the very beginning. You'll find links out to our various social media accounts. You'll find a lovely little tab to go check out our merchandise store where you can get a sticker, a shirt, a throw pillow Um, you name it, with our logo on it or something related to a past episode such as uh, that cool design, uh, the squirrels are not what they seem, uh, that sort of thing. It's a cool way to support the show, but if you want to support our show without spending a dime, just rate and review us wherever you have the, the power to do so and be sure to subscribe to our new show, Invention.
0: That's right. Don't just check out our other podcast, Invention. Click that subscribe button. That's what really matters do it press the button subscribe anyway big thanks to our excellent audio producers alex williams and tari harrison if you'd like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hi you can always email us at blow at